Well, this is Michael Easley in Context, and today on the broadcast, we've got Dr. Denny Burke. Denny has been the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood since 2016. And if you're a friend of the broadcast, you know we talk about CBMW quite often, and all these links, again, will be in the show notes at the bottom of your podcast, however you aggregate and listen to us. So you'll have information on Dr. Burke as well as Boyce College, so there's seminary, CBMW, etc. Dr. Burke also is on the faculty of Boyce College and Southern Seminary. He serves as the director for the Center of Gospel and Culture, Dr. Burke writes frequently on biblical and theological issues. You can find that at DennyBurke.com. He is the author of a book on sexual ethics entitled, What is the Meaning of Sex? And co-author of Transforming Homosexuality. He also has published a commentary on the pastoral epistles, as well as a book on Greek grammar entitled, Articulate Infinitives, of the Greek New Testament, and that's the kind of stuff I used to have to read. He's written articles in the Journal for the Study of New Testament, Tyndale, on and on it goes, Journal of Evangelical Theological Society, a.k.a. JETS. Denny, thanks for your time, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So let's start at the beginning. The Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood began circa, what years, with Piper and Grudem? 1987. 87. And the Danvers Statement had been out by now, correct? Yes. The founding and the public release of the Danvers Statement kind of coincided. Piper and Grudem and a handful of others had gotten together in Dallas, Texas, and then subsequently in Danvers, Massachusetts. And when they finally came out publicly with their statement, they started an organization called CBMW. And then the Danvers Statement was a statement trying to define manhood womanhood is all about and in particular with respect to the way men and women relate to one another within the church and within marriage. So it was kind of focused on those two areas. Conversation has broadened a lot since then, mm-hmm. but that's how we started. And it's interesting. I was at, I'm a Dallas grad, and, of course, this was after I had finished my THM, but we were talking about it quite a bit. And unless you're you know in a Bible church or you know, fairly – I wouldn't say academic, but a church that tends to be a little more theologically rooted, you wouldn't know complementarian vis-a-vis egalitarian. So give us Denny's thumbnail. I give mine all the time, but I like to hear our guests, our thumbnail definition of complementarian versus egalitarian. Our position is called the complementarian position. We call it that because we believe that men and women are created equally in the image of God. They're co-heirs of the grace of life, as Peter says. So they're totally equal with respect to being created in the image of God and totally equal with respect to their enjoyment of the benefits of redemption. We all stand, you know, on the same ground at the foot of the cross. So there's a quality of image bearing, a quality of dignity and of worth, a quality of sharing in the benefits of, of redemption. However, within that equality, we know that the Lord has ordained differences between male and female. And a part of those differences involves different callings within marriage and within the church. Now, obviously within marriage, there's a biological distinction between male and female, and there's a biological complementarity between male and female body that enables procreation. And, you know, we're different physically. Complementarians also recognize that we're different socially, so that we have different callings within that relationship of marriage. 
Husbands are called to be leaders and protectors and providers. Wives are called to affirm the leadership of their husbands and follow it. So that would be the complementarian position. The roles and callings of men and women don't conflict with one another. They're complementary to each other. The egalitarian view, though, is the one that kind of goes more with the egalitarian spirit of the age today because while they would agree with us that men and women are created equally in the image of God, they do not agree with us about differences. They would say that men and women are also equal in terms of their callings within marriage and within the church. Within marriage, that means that leadership is a jump ball. You know, <laughs> It's not something that's assigned. Leadership is not something that's assigned by the Lord. It's something that you know they just sort of figure out or split 50-50. But there's no assigned leadership in marriage. And, of course, the implications for the church are there's no assigned leader based on gender in the church either, whereas complementarians would say, you know, the Lord has called, has limited some governing and teaching roles within the church to qualified men. Egalitarians uh, would say, no, all positions are open to all people regardless of their gender. So that's a thumbnail sketch of the difference yep. between complementarianism yep. and egalitarianism. So I just truncated equal value, distinct roles, equal value, equal roles. <laughs> That's it. That's so, okay. It. So we're on the same page. Now, I was, um, I was just trying to fill your podcast up. No, nah, it's great, man. <laughs> so what are we seeing now? Because I remember early in church ministry 40 years ago, you know, elders were men. We differentiated between the function of an elder, the office of an elder, and the gifting of pastor teacher. And I mean, even in the so-called blue book early days, Elizabeth Elliott and others contributed, Paige Patterson's wife. And the point was, you can have the gift of pastor teaching as a woman. And I used Nancy Lee DeMoss as an illustration. And she's a gift to teacher. And she knows her audience. She's defined her lane. But there's others, of course, that will move and say, no, it's fine to have a woman as an elder and or pastor teacher. Now, that argument, as Grudem and I have talked many times, said, you know, we lost the battle for the local church. We may have won the war theologically, but we lost the battles in the local churches. And I don't know in your sphere, which is much bigger than mine, what are we seeing now? More and more churches seem to be moving over to an egalitarian, and it's almost like a yawn. This isn't even important anymore. What I'm seeing is a ton of churches don't even have clear teaching on this. And if you don't have clear teaching, you're going to default towards egalitarian practices. And even if you're in a church that has a complementarian confessional basis, you know, I'm a Southern Baptist. And there are a lot of Southern Baptist churches that have, uh, you know, obviously you're subscribing to the, the Baptist faith and message, which, you know, very clearly says that the pastor is limited to men, is qualified by Scripture. But you've got, a, you know, a lot of churches, even within our own ranks, that are not in keeping with that. They're adopting ministry practices, which you know have women in pastoral roles. But I think what's going on there for a lot of churches is not that they've positively embraced an egalitarian vision. It's just they're not teaching about it at all or thinking through it carefully at all. There's a kind of a pragmatism driving that practice. So that's what I see within a lot of churches today. Now, that's not to say there aren't straight-up egalitarian churches. There are. There are many who are, you know, principially, you know, interpreting the scriptures differently, and they're taking a principled stand and ordaining female pastors and all the rest. But what I'm kind of concerned about are those that are 
otherwise conservative evangelical churches who believe the scriptures, and yet there's a void in teaching on these things, and filling that void is de facto egalitarianism. That's what I'm seeing a lot of. And that's what I meant about it's kind of become a yawn. Even some of my pastor friends in the Nashville area, you know, they consider me pretty doctrinaire and strident on a lot of things. Fine. But, you know, they would all sort of say, huh, you know, no big deal, Michael. We're okay with, you know, having occasional women teachers on Sunday and, you know, elders. We do have women in our elders or, you know, vestry, whatever they call it. And it's, I don't want to be unkind or bulldogmatic, Denny, but it's just sad to me. And this is not unlike other areas of Scripture, correct? But this one, and the reason we're calling this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, biblical manhood and a man-hating culture, is because when we step outside the protection of the local assembly and we're in the world, so to speak, boy, it's a vilification to be a man anymore. And if you're a white male, oh, you know, it's you're in trouble. So most men, in my experience, I could be wrong, tend to be back on their heels, and they avoid these discussions because arguments can ensue, feminism is loud, and uh, you don't want to joust that you know, argument. So again, more of a statement than the question, how are you helping maybe your students in particular, maybe churches in particular, the average guy whose husband, father, trying to raise a family, keep his mortgage up? How do you encourage folks to say, you know, this isn't an issue got as a hobby horse, but to be a man is a biblical mantle God has certain things he expects of you. You need to have courage and smile and be kind, and you need to know what those principles are. But how do you help them? Well, for me, it starts at the ground level at the local church. And you're going to have to have your church committed to, and in particular the pastor, teaching and preaching on these things, which means you're not going to tiptoe around these texts when you come to them in the Scripture Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They're not going to listen to somebody else. So if you want God's people to be captivated by what Jesus says, you're going to have to bring his voice to them by preaching the scripture to them, which means the whole counsel of God. And so, unfortunately, a lot of people think of Christianity as a kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. And they think that manhood and womanhood is just some categories that they can fill up with their own content. That's not the case. The Bible talks about what it means to be a man. It talks about what it means to be a woman. There are special responsibilities given to husbands within marriage, special responsibilities given to women within marriage, likewise also within the church. If you're not spelling those out and teaching those to your people, they're not going to be picking it up by osmosis. They're certainly not going to be getting it from the culture. So we have to be committed to the consistent exposition of Scripture and then calling people's consciences to submit to that. Now, what I will hear from a lot of folks is, is they'll say, well, Denny, you know, this is, this is not an issue of heaven or hell. This is kind of a secondary issue. It's not a primary issue, you know, whether or not, you know, women can be pastors or something like that, to which I would want to say, well, I actually agree with that. This is a secondary issue. This is not about whether or not Scripture is inerrant or whether or not Jesus is a substitutionary atonement. The problem with that perspective, though, is that secondary issues are important, too, because secondary issues define how you do church, who you can have fellowship. You have to decide in a church, are you going to baptize babies or not? Are you going to ordain women or not? These secondary issues are really, really crucial, 
And we've got to have biblical clarity on those things, or else you have division in the church, and you'll default to a sort of cultural compromise. If we go back, I don't know who originally said it. I think Schaff quoted it, but in essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, all things charity. And, and that may be reform light, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this an essential? It depends on what you mean by essential. <laughs> so the way I like that's a to perfect, think of, that's a perfect seminary professor answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, in other words, if you're asking me, is this essential to being a Baptist? So the Baptist, I'd say, yes, it's written in our confessional document. If you're okay. asking me, can a person be a Christian and be an error on this issue? Well, I think that the answer to that question is, is yes as well. So when we think about these different doctrines is to think of them in kind of a triage. This was a concept that Albert Moeller came up with some years ago. But to think of first-order issues as those issues that are constitutive of Christianity, if you get it wrong, you can't be a Christian. So if you deny the deity of Christ, you're outside of the faith at that point. So those are your first-order issues. The second-order issues are the issues that don't determine necessarily whether or not you're a Christian, but they do determine whether or not you can do church together as Christians. The Lord's Supper, baptism, and then this issue would fall into that category. And then you've got your third-order issues that really shouldn't divide Christians at all. People within the same church can agree to disagree on those kinds of issues. So I do think that this is in the second category. But the issue today, and this is where I think a lot of people miss this, is that even though this particular issue is a second-order issue, it implicates first-order issues. Because sometimes the reason that people reject what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood is because they just don't believe that the Bible is true. Now you're at a first-order issue. You know, in my own church several years ago, there was a member that we had to remove from the membership through church discipline because this member did not believe that Paul was right wow. <laughs> when he spoke First Timothy, things like First Timothy 2.12, I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That is a rejection of the authority of Scripture. So, Yes, you can be wrong on this issue, but if you're doing it because you think the Bible's wrong, well, now you've implicated a first-order issue. Or you'll have some people who will say, you know, we know what the Bible says about this, but now we know a little bit better because our ideas of justice are advanced beyond the Scripture. And so even though we see some sort of an ordered relationship between husband and wife in the Bible, we know better than that now, even though the Bible says that you know, qualified men are supposed to be pastors. We know better than that now. But once you adopt that kind of a framework or that kind of a hermeneutic, you can apply that to other issues. You can say, well, we know that the Bible says that it was wrong to have homosexual relationships then, but we know better now. If you apply that hermeneutic to other issues, well, guess what? Now you're in first order territory again. So the way I like to talk about this is to say, look, this is an important issue because even though it's a second-order issue, it can and does implicate first-order issues if you're consistent with the hermeneutic or if you have a rejection of the authority of Scripture. To the average young pastor, and in your worldview, I would imagine most of them are going into Southern Baptist churches. Do you think those young men are pretty equipped on how to handle it? And this, obviously, you're talking primarily about a church level. You got to do this with diplomacy and love and kindness. One of my prior guests in this series, Stephen Mansfield, he made a pretty compelling argument that we do need to acknowledge there's been a lot of abuse historically. And a lot is certainly, I don't like using many and a lot and most for obvious reasons, but 
certainly there have been churches that have been bulldogmatic and, you know, women can't speak in any situation. You sit there and be quiet and talk to your husband. And I had a friend in the doctoral program who was pastoring a church. Women sat on one side, men sat on the other, and he taught the women's Bible studies. They literally didn't allow women to speak in any context. So to some level, we say, okay, we were too strident. We were wrong in some places, but we don't want to, you know, say, oh, the culture is right. So these right. young guys are going into established churches more times than not, and they're going to have a member like you mentioned in your fellowship. How do you equip those guys to do that with kindness, diplomacy, but yet standing firm on the text? I guess your view on these things is going to be shaped by your experiences. You know, I just haven't been in those kinds of churches. I'm coming from a background of that was more open to egalitarian interpretations and practices. And so coming to a complementarian position was, I didn't have this experience of women couldn't talk or, you know what I'm saying? So I hear these stories and I'm hearing, okay, I'm not denying your experience. I'm just saying that's not been my experience. And most of the churches that I'm in and that I'm visiting, they're not struggling with being too complementarian. Right. No, (laughs) Um, my, my point simply was illustrating the acknowledgement that some churches have been heavy-handed in areas where they didn't need to be. Sure, sure. I do not deny that. I'm just saying it hasn't been my my personal experience with things. But even so, even you know, speaking to people that have come out of that experience, I just don't think that that's what complementarianism teaches. Complementarianism. Oh, I agree. I yeah. agree. But that's what I mean about a man-hating culture. We're glommed together as this white male, you know, angry, right. Fox News watching, conservative, Trump or whatever you want to use. And it's not fair, but the world's not fair. And so I'm trying to encourage folks, both men and women, to say, you know, you need to have the courage to stick to the text and say there are some distinctions from these roles. But again, my point, it's a yawn. You're saying they're not teaching about it. And I'm trying to say, how do we help them, Denny? Yeah. Well, if you're not teaching clearly about this, it's going to have wide-ranging implications in the the way that your people are growing up as disciples. Because, you know, 30 years ago, in 1987, the focus of the debate was on roles within the church and the home. A manhood and womanhood being defined in terms of their respective callings in the church and the home. Today, people don't even know what a man and a woman are anymore. And the issues are so much more fundamental. So you've got a whole generation of students coming up, children coming up, and they don't see any necessary connection between their embodiedness as male and female and the way they're supposed to behave as male and female. They don't understand that the biological distinction has social ramifications for the way they're supposed to live their life. All of those assumptions are being erased right before our very eyes. Well, it's a construct, you know, and this is the whole gender discussion, which is fascinating that we have gender discussion to begin with, but it's okay. You're assigned a gender. No, you choose your gender. No, your parents assign your gender. And the idea of X, Y, baby, it's pretty clear. That's pushed away. I saw, I'm very rarely on Twitter and social media anymore. It's just wearing me out. But there was a tweet by some secularists over the latest trans person who's beating all these women's records. And his byline was, it's a fact. Men are better than women. 
And I thought that's pretty, you know, pretty gutsy to say, but he's right because there are intrinsic distinctions from the sexes, but we've been browbeaten in the culture, in the corporate world, that we're equal in every right. I told a story with one of my other guests about when we lived in D.C., holding a door for a woman, and she uttered a forward expletive as she walked by. Hmm. And I said, you're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just astonishing how these things have changed. And you're right. This current present generation does not know the Danvers statement. They don't know egalitarian you know, versus complementarian. They're completely clueless. And what they see everywhere except the local church is equal value, equal role. In fact, if you don't have more women on your board or on leadership or television anchors or whatever, you're misogynist. Right. And, you know, we see actors and actresses pay debates. So this is a big topic. And Christopher Yuan, who's a dear friend, he and I have been arguing for a decade. It's about identity in Christ, not your definition of sexuality or gender. And, you know, I think it's so important for pastors and church leaders in particular to be laying down the foundations again. And by foundations, I just mean Genesis 1 and 2. If people don't have an understanding of God's design in creation and God's design in male and female from the beginning— None of the rest of the Bible is going to make sense. None of the Bible's teaching about male and female roles is going to make sense because it's just going to seem arbitrary. And you have to understand that this teaching is based on the way that God designed male and female within his original good creation. So before there was any sin in the world, you've got Genesis 1, God made them male and female both in his own image, and then you've got Genesis 2, God putting the man in the garden to keep and to cultivate, and then putting the woman in the garden as a helper to Adam, and then all marriages being patterned after that first marriage before there was any sin in the world. And you've got a biological distinction between male and female that's very clear. The biological distinction is based on their body's ordering for reproduction, And then you've got a social distinction based on that biological distinction. The woman is called to be a helper to Adam, and Adam is called to be the leader. The woman is called to this vocation of childbearing. Her body is made for this, and that has social implications for, you know, the economy of the home. The man has a body that's built for fathering and that is filled with more testosterone. He's got more strength his calling outside of the home to work the ground. In other words, their physical differences have necessary social implications. And a lot of Christians today, unfortunately, don't see the natural connection between the way God has created us as embodied creatures and then how that has implications for the covenant of marriage and how we relate to one another really in larger society as well. It's not all about authority and submission. Authority and submission is a covenantal relationship that obtains within marriage and within the leadership within the church. But the differences between male and female do have wider social consequences that we ignore to our own hurt. Okay, this is a really good distinction. Let me kind of take them one at a time. I often argue Ephesians 5, and I'm always humored by the instruction to the woman is much shorter than to the man, number one. I also find the language we've used, headship and submission, are a little bit inaccurate because 
they're not roles. Submission is not a role. If submission was a role, all a woman would ever say is, yes, dear. Right. Submission is a response to someone in authority. And the way Paul lays it out, we're submissive to Christ as the church. We're submissive to our parents. There's an authority. I mean, the military is a perfect example. There's a chain of command. And your commanding officer, you submit to him or her. Headship, leadership must be defined not with the nomenclature of chauvinism or the culture, but he gave himself up for her. Right. And I think back to teaching in the local church, this is a big axe of mine to grind, is you have to go back to, to be Cindy's husband is to be willing to sacrifice my life for her, to nourish and cherish her, to care for her as Christ does the church. That's a far cry from Archie Bunker sitting in a lazy boy barking orders when my dinner's ready. That's exactly right. Biblical headship is not about how you can get everyone in the family to pander to your every whim. (laughs) Biblical headship is modeled by Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And the point there is, is Christ a real authority in his relationship with his bride? Yes, he is. And Christ's bride is supposed to follow his headship, honor it, submit to it. But at the same time, Christ's headship is self-sacrificial. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the best kind of real leadership is the kind that's not looking out for one's own interest, but for the interests of those that he's leading. And so your secular patriarchy, that's not even on the radar. Your secular patriarchy, which is what a lot of people recoil against, it can have abuse in it. It can have mistreatment. It can have self-seeking. It can have any manner of abuses that have nothing to do with the biblical pattern of headship. The biblical pattern of headship is Jesus, who has real authority, but he's also wielding that authority in a self-sacrificial way for the good of those that he's leading. And so biblical headship then is a blessing to God's people. Just as Jesus blesses the church, husbands bless their wives through this kind of headship. And so we just have to put that vision out there of the beauty of the picture that God gives us of marriage and how men and women are to relate to one another. So we differentiate between a clarification of these roles, which I think is so important. I, I don't know how many times Cindy and I spoke with the Family Life Marriage Conferences for 15 years, and we would spend great amounts of time, energy, illustration saying, you know, he's not the Archie Bunker, he's not the general in the home. And there are a lot of people that would have a experience where their father was dogmatic, was strident, was difficult. The mom may have been quiet or submissive to a point where she was not involved, whatever dad says. And I don't think we see that as much as we once did in the church or even in the culture. That said, those vestiges kind of hang on to people. And then when you move forward, and your second point was we're talking about these roles. Give us some more help, Denny, on this differentiation. You talked about childbearing. You talked about for the woman. You talked about work in the ground for the man. Give us some more like shoe leather. What does that mean when we talk about, you know, equal value, distinct roles? Well, if I could just back up a couple of steps and say, 
when it comes to this idea of headship and in a like manner, just even the role that God has called women to, there's two directions that people can distort these. So for example, with headship, it's not just overbearing to abusiveness that is the temptation sometimes for men. There's two directions here. What you can see with men and their headship is sometimes they can be overbearing to abusive, but on the other hand, you can see them abusing their headship by being passive and exercising no leadership at all. Maybe they're very engaged at work, but when they get home, you know, they're totally checked out. So you have these kind of two poles of error here that can happen with men and their headship. And what the biblical vision is saying is that, no, you need to be leading real authority, but it needs to be self-sacrificial. And you don't need to fall off the horse on either side of either passivity or, you know, being overbearing. And it's the same kind of a thing with the role that God has called women to within marriage. A woman can try to usurp authority and try to be the head of the relationship. That's one direction that an error can go in. Or she could just be kind of a passive doormat, which is another direction of error that she can go in, when really what God has called her to be is a fellow heir of the grace of life which means she is her husband's equal in terms of value and worth and being created for ministry within the church and being created to come alongside the man in subduing the earth. She has a noble calling, ministries that God wants her to do, but she can't be a doormat in that and she can't be a usurper in that. She is supposed to be a helper in that, a joyful helper affirming the headship of her husband. And so there are errors here, I think really practical errors that both men and women can get into, and the errors go in two different directions. And the biblical ideal is a correction to both directions. I love it. I love it. It's very helpful. And so I often tell the story about anyone who knows my wife, Cindy, coming up on 42 years of marriage. Cindy is a very strong person. She is a realtor. She is smart as a business person. Our kids are growing and gone. She's a force <laughs> to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I often tell, you know, couples and young men, I said, you need to, you know, I'm proud of my wife in the sense of the woman she is. She's an incredible mom, stayed home with the kids, worked a little bit here and there, but her primary thing was raising those kidlings. And then, you know, when that was different, she went into business, wanted to do real estate. She's wonderful. She's really a mother to the people she serves as clients because she's really helping them with this big decision. And then she's a phenomenal grandma. And so I watch these roles and I go, there's nothing wallflower or diminutive. There's nothing that you look at someone and go, this woman has been oppressed. <laughs> you know? right. And trying to say, you've got gifts, wiring, ability God's uniquely given you. And she's done the Bible study circuit thing and taught women's groups and all that stuff. But this chapter, she loves real estate and she sees it as a ministry, Denny. And part of, I think, what we do at the pulpit is helping people see it's not simply, you know, rotating grains, feeding your kids three meals a day, doing laundry, having dinner ready when dad comes home. I think part of that does take uh, some re-education on how we celebrate men and women's differences. And this is the crown of creation in some respects, right? This was God's gift to man. Here she is. She's not like the rest of them from your side, from your flesh. Yep. The biblical command, 1 Peter 3, is husbands grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And he specifically commands us to live with our wives in an understanding way, 
which means knowing what makes our wives tick, knowing what their loves are, what their needs are, and then putting those things in front of our own. And that only leads to health and flourishing and encouraging the strengths and the callings that God puts on women's lives. And not all women are the same. Your wife's a realtor. Some women aren't going to do that. They're going to have different callings. You know, my wife's a speech pathologist by training. She's homeschooling our kids right now. At a different season of life, maybe she'll do some speech pathology again. (laughs) Um, But, you know, what I want to do is to encourage her in what God's called her to be and to do as a wife and a mother. And that's her heart as well. So as we kind of wind down our time, give me Denny Burke's trends and concerns. You've articulated about the local church and the need to you know, teach that, a clear complementarian view of why we believe what we believe. And so you know, our professor, you've got a classroom of us. Uh, what are your you know, top three or four concerns going forward with understanding our roles and especially how to be a godly man in a culture that really does fight against men in so many ways? Yeah, I'm really concerned about Christians becoming captive to the spirit of the age. And the age that we're living in right now is directly pushing against these biblical teachings. It used to be 30 years ago, the main way that these things were challenged within churches was through rival interpretations of Scripture, and you'd have more left-leaning or egalitarian interpretations of Scripture to justify a different kind of a practice that denied male headship and all the rest. Today, that's not as much what the issue is. The issue today is not that people think it's wrong because the Bible says so, but they think it's wrong because it's mean or because it's unjust. And so you have a whole movement within our culture right now that's trickling down from the ivory tower, but this ideology of critical theory that's dividing the world between oppressors and oppressed and basically making an entire worldview and human identity commitments based on those categories. But when you do that, you automatically rule out the biblical depiction of the way that men and women relate to one another within the church and the home. So I'm really concerned about that critical theory framework that is, in many ways, people not even being able to you know, name what it's called, what I just said, critical theory, but it's nevertheless influencing them So they're sort of tossing the teaching aside. So I'm really, really concerned about that. And in a lot of times, people will point to genuine horrible things that have happened, you know, where you've got men who were abusive or church situations which were abusive and which we would all want to name as sin and to call out, to expose, and to reform. But then... What some people will say is, is that, well, because that happened, now we have to turn away from what the Bible says on this. I'm really concerned about that as well. I'm seeing more and more of that. So we just have to be vigilant and remember, look, one person's error doesn't cancel out the Scripture's plain teaching when it's countercultural. We need to be able to name error, call it out, but at the same time be faithful to Scripture and not be pushed away from faithfulness just because some people have been unfaithful. Okay, last question. You've got a group of young guys. Maybe you're discipling them. Maybe they're young marrieds, and they've never heard any of this. And they're in a different culture than you and I grew up in. 
basic, you know, primer. We're going to start in Genesis. Male and female, he created them in his image. What are the three things, those guys who don't know anything, Denny, what do they need to know? Well, the main thing they need to know is that God has given them as men a special calling in their life in their main relationships with women. And their main relationship is going to be a marriage relationship. And within the marriage relationship, God has called the man to be a leader, a protector, and a provider. Okay, so you can see all of that. For example, you can see it in Genesis, I think, but I think you see it in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives. They're the head of their wives, so there's the leadership. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So what's the husband doing there? He's providing for when he's nourishing and cherishing his own flesh, his own wife. He's providing for her. And then also it implies just like you instinctively care for your own body, you instinctively care for your wife. If somebody comes up to you and they rear back with their fists like they're going to punch you in the face, you instinctively defend, right? You put your boots up or you move. Same thing with your wife. Your care and protection for her needs to be instinctive. And so what I want to tell men is even if they're not married, mature manhood is aiming towards the ability to be a leader and a protector and a provider. And what I want to teach my son to do is, look, I want him to be the kind of young man who grows up and knows that I've got to learn how to be a leader and a protector and a provider, which means I've got to take certain kinds of responsibilities. And I've got to cultivate certain virtues in my own life. But leadership, protection, and provision are the three major things that men want to attend to in their character development. Dr. Denny Burke, who currently teaches at Boyce College and Southern Seminary, we've got a lot of information about him in the show notes. Denny Burke, one word, Denny Burke, no E, dot com. You can find a plethora of articles he's written. Denny, thanks for jumping on the podcast with us and uh, pray your semester goes well. Keep at it. We appreciate you fighting the good fight, brother. Thank you. Great to spend this time with you, Michael. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.